uh, I'm not going to give just a whole lot of introduction. Most of you were in the studies yesterday. And uh, the idea, for starting in chapter 12, is that the dragon was foiled in his attempt to devour the man-child Jesus, and therefore he turned his attention to persecuting the woman, which represents God's people. And he tried several things. He tried chasing after her and drowning her, but the earth swallowed up the water. And he was enraged. He's been defeated three times in chapter 12, so he's infuriated. And he calls on allies to try to help him. Now, his goal is, since he's lost his position to accuse God's people before God, because Jesus' blood forgives their sins, he's trying to get the people of God to turn away from him. So that then he can accuse them, because if they turn away from God, Jesus' blood will not cleanse them any longer, and he'll be able to successfully accuse them. And the first ally that he calls on is a beast coming up out of the sea that makes war against the Christians and overcomes them and represents uh, the persecution, uh, I think, in the first century in John's context of the Roman Empire, but more broadly, it's that uh, kind of tactic that Satan has used repeatedly throughout history of trying to sort of scare and intimidate God's people into defecting. And uh, he says that the secret to withstanding this ally is perseverance and faith. We've got to trust God and we've got to endure even though it's difficult. So that's where we've kind of come to in uh, this study. And now we're going to see a second ally that Satan calls on to try to get the Christians away from the Lord. Do you have a question or a comment before we start in 1311? Yes, Patty. Yes. Yes. And so it just was interesting to me that the other guys that did the Gospels had that, put that in their Gospels. John did not, and yet he put this huge thing about this old symbolic thing. Good point. Yes, you've got the passage about the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21 that you really don't have in John, so that's a good point. John also has apocalyptic language uh, here, so good point. Other thoughts? All right. Uh, would somebody read then chapter 13, verses 11 to 18? Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs, so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand 
or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number of that man and his number is 666. Okay, this beast comes from the earth, and what does he look like? Mm, sort of. Got two horns like a lamb, which I think is sort of a disguise on his part. When you think of a lamb, you think of um, perhaps someone, something that's not very threatening. And yet, in many ways, this beast is quite threatening because how does he speak? Like a dragon. Like a dragon. You know, he's got the voice of Satan himself. And uh, so don't be deceived by his disguise. He's not to be trusted. What's his goal in what he does? Yeah, to get the people to worship the first beast. So, in a sense, this beast represents a false religious system. This is a religious beast trying to get the people to worship the sea beast. And to do that, what kinds of things does he do? Yes, he, he has to make an image to the beast. And what does he do with that image? Yeah, he's a ventriloquist. What else does he do with that image? Uh, well, yeah, he does. That's kind of another uh, issue. What did he do uh, to the image in verse 15? Yeah, breathe the breath of life into this image. Kind of reminds you of God. He tries to sort of do what God does by breathing life into the image. He also was able to work signs. That's interesting. Uh, great signs, even, even making fire come down out of heaven. Uh, so uh, that reminds you a lot of various things that the Lord can do. Reminds you a little bit of the two witnesses back in chapter 11 who had those great signs that they could do. We're starting to see some things here that we'll uh, make a little more concrete in a moment. Annie? Also, um, the mark on, on the forehead or on the hand was similar to... Yes, it was. We had a seal on the forehead of the uh, faithful to God. Now he marks those who are faithful to the beast. And in fact, uh, what does he do with those who aren't marked by the beast? Yeah, and uh, makes them unable to buy or sell. Uh, so, you know, they, they, they're killed or they're discriminated against uh, economically and unable to trade. Dave? Uh, um, I used to think when I'd read this, this reminded me of when Adam got his a mark on his forehead when he killed his... You no, Cain, 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 yeah. When he killed Abel. And I just wondered if there's any... Well, there may be a little similarity. I mean, Cain's mark protected him and kept him from being killed. This mark protects them from being killed. It's those without the mark that the beast kills. And uh, those with the mark are being favored by him. So maybe there is some similarity there. And uh, he's got a number, too. What's the number of this beast? 666. 
666, which has uh, certainly uh, lent itself to lots and lots of discussion, hasn't it? <laughs> and uh, everybody's asking, well, you know, what does that mean? You know, what does that represent? And um, so uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to tell you what it, uh, what it uh, represents. It's uh, the years of Noah's life when the uh, flood began, plus the height, plus the breadth of Nebuchadnezzar's image. That comes up to 666, which is probably about as good as what most people are coming up with. Uh, I think there's another direction that we need to go. Uh, that was tongue-in-cheek. But there's another direction we need to go when we think about this. Um, we know that numbers in Revelation have some significance, and the number that we've really focused in on a lot so far in the book is what number? Well, six doesn't quite get there, does it? You know, seven would be God's number, would be the number of success and completeness. So what's six? It doesn't quite do it. Six represents failure. 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 The devil's number comes as close to God's as it can, but it never reaches it. And I think that's the main point of this 666. Not so much for us to try to invent ways to, uh, to come up with a, a, a something that, that equals that, but seeing that idea of the devil, he tries to counterfeit the things of God. He always tries to get to seven, but he always comes up short. Now, there have been a lot of efforts made to try to make this into some sort of a name using like numerical equivalence to letters. There's all sorts of systems for that because it kind of depends on, you know, well, what, what numbers are you going to assign to the letters? And if you play with it really well, you can do a lot of stuff with that. If you let... A equal 1, B equal 2, C equal 3, and so forth in the first name. If you let A equal 100, B equal 101, C equal 102, and so forth in the last name, G. Fisher comes up to 666. And uh, based upon the number of other names that people have worked out ways to equal 666, I expect you could probably do that with your name if you played with it long enough. Um, so there may be some significance in that. I'm not totally ruling out there being some secondary application in that, but I certainly don't think that's the main point. And I don't think that's the relevant point for us. I think the relevant point is he can't get to seven. And so this beast, while he's very impressive, and uh, you can see why people would be deceived by him with all that he's able to do, don't forget... He only gets to six. Now, what would you have to do in order to deal with this beast? We said that in the case of the sea beast, you've got to endure and trust God. What do you have to do here? Be wise. Yes, be wise. Use discernment. You see, the devil is trying to, to blind us. He's trying to pull the wool over our eyes by coming up with some sort of a religious system that's impressive and that looks somewhat like God's. And that way he can deceive us. There are some people you could not intimidate into leaving the Lord, but you might be able to deceive them into leaving the Lord. The devil's versatile. He knows that he's got to operate on various fronts. And so this is a, a whole second direction he takes. Now, 
in terms of the first century, I think it's reasonable to think that in, in John's day, this probably relates to the religion of the worship of the emperor, since he was trying to get the people to worship the first beast. But I don't think that's really the main point for us, since we're not worshiping the Roman Caesars these days, but we are confronted by a lot of false religions. And so I think the devil's always using an earth beast to try to get us to worship the wrong thing or worship in the wrong way so that we can be condemned, separated from God, and therefore accused. Now I'm going to say some more things, but uh, I'll pause, and do you have some questions and comments? I think it's interesting because I was rereading 18 and it says let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast versus the number of a man. Uh, when you look at all those verses that come previously all those things are things that were miracles they've heard about but they were just slightly different. And when it says it's the calculation of a man, the number of a man God, number 7 would have those same miracles but they would be perfect. Exactly. The devils are a counterfeit. They're only human when it's all said and done. They don't quite get to God's status. Exactly. Jason? The appearance of this beast as a lamb, I think, is probably significant, too, because the lamb that we've seen so far is Christ, the true lamb, and here's something trying to look like that. But but its speech betrays it. It's, It's speaking of the dragon. There are so many incredible ways in which in this chapter and in the book overall, Satan counterfeits and parodies the things of God. Let me just run through a few of those with you. There's a lot of them. But you've got the lamb idea. We've said that. You've got the seal on the forehead versus the mark on the forehead. And actually, look at 14.1. They have the name of God written on their forehead, the 144,000 do, and they have the name of the beast associated with the mark in 1317. So it's both a mark, seal, and name on the forehead, either of the faithful or of those who worship the beast. Here's some more. There's a trinity idea here. You have the father who plans, the son who executes, the spirit who promotes. You've got the dragon who plans. You have the sea beast who executes. And you have the earth beast that promotes the sea beast. You have the diadems on the head. And 1912 talks about Jesus having diadems. Uh, You have horns. And you have the same thing with Jesus in chapter 5. Um, you have this idea as the, the, the head being slain and coming back to life uh, that attracts followers. Um, you have the signs that come from heaven. Uh, you, you have punishment for those that are not marked. You have the number, the six, getting as close as possible to the seven. And... Uh, you, you might think about this. What about the flood of the dragon that didn't get the woman versus God's flood that was successful in the Old Testament? Uh, there's going to be lots of other kinds of things. I would particularly, as I said earlier, and we're just we're not going to have we're not going to be able to get to all of this at least today. You've got that contrast between God's woman's city and the devil's woman's city that becomes a big theme later on in the book. And uh, so, and, and there's more. Those are just some of the more outstanding things where you can see Satan 
Well, what do they do when they try to counterfeit money? You ever seen any counterfeit money that was hot pink? Is there a reason? You know, you want to get it to look like the real thing. And so that's what he's doing. Other thoughts and comments, Dave? I was just saying this goes right back to the seven churches of Asia because they all saw themselves as one thing, but when they analyzed it through God's eyes, there was something else, which gives us a warning that we need to make sure that we're always paying attention and not redefining what Christ wants based on how we think it should be. Amen, Scott. And as you said, it's similar in a lot of ways, but the bottom line, I think, is in verse 18 where it says, it's the number of a man. This isn't from God, this is from me. Exactly. Amen. Other thoughts, questions, comments? All right. Well, as I say, I think um, we need to see this as a continuing story. And this is a good chapter division, and yet still we need to remember what we've just seen. If you were uh, describing a boxing match, you would say, I don't know much about that, but you would say, now in this corner, and you'd describe, you know, the, uh, the boxer, and then what do you do? And in that corner, well, here's what, who's in the other corner. Who's opposing this? Chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to the God, to God and to the Lamb. And no one, no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Okay. Now, look at the comparison between 13.1 and 14.1. In 13.1, the dragon's standing on the seashore. In 14.1, the lamb is standing on Mount Zion. And just as the dragon calls up his allies, who's with the lamb? 144,000. We've seen those guys before, haven't we? Who were they? They were the servants of God that had been sealed on their forehead. So they're God's servants. There's a debate about this, but perhaps now with the Lamb in heaven. I, I, I'm open on that one, but I think that's probably the idea here. That they are joined with Him and they are uh, singing and praising God. Singing this new song before the throne and before the living creatures and the elders. And he gives some characteristics of these 144,000. To be true servants of God, there are obviously some things that had to be true about them. They were purchased from the earth. They had not been defiled with women. They were pure virgins. Now, I think he means by that spiritually. And it's going to be interesting that the devil's woman is uh, a notorious harlot. So there's that contrast. These are the ones who follow the Lamb. Where? Wherever he goes, which is a distinct, a distinctive mark of the life of a Christian. 
They don't just follow Him where they want or where they think is best or everywhere but one place. They follow Him wherever He goes. Uh, they are purchased as God's first fruits. The first fruits always belong to God. There's no lie in their mouth. Uh, you might think of even some of the lies that were told in churches like Pergamum and Thyatira and so forth. And they're blameless. So these, the true servants of God are with him on the other side. You've got the lamb and the 144,000 versus the dragon and his impressive beasts. And of course you're expecting eventually a showdown between these two sides and that's what's coming. Comments and questions? They're at least with him. I don't know that we ever really see them fighting in the battle we're going to see. So I'm hesitant to say that. But at least they're with him. Right, if we're going to take it literally as they do, that would be a problem. In their original reference in 7, we pointed out yesterday that 144,000 were on the earth, there was a great multitude in heaven, which is just the reverse of what the JWs do with that. Um, you know, it's kind of, you know, if you jump into the middle of a context and you just pull out a number, you know, you can do almost anything you want to. I mean, you know, studying something in context always changes how you look at something. And uh, so, uh, there's not a lot to be done with, with what they're saying if they're not willing to patiently study through and see, you know, what this is all about. Other thoughts? Would you, be, would you favor these 144 being like in heaven with the Lamb just because of verse 2, the voice come from heaven? Primarily 2 and 3. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're before the throne. They're before the living creatures and the elders. I've kind of changed my mind on that in the last few years. So. Um, all right. Now, what we're, what we're heading up to is kind of this climactic battle. I think we're doing background to get up to detailing that seventh trumpet and the victory the Lord gives. But, you know, a good victory really needs to be savored. And so what we're going to do in a lot of this is giving about as full a presentation as we possibly can. It looks to me like you've got in the next section announcements of angels that are more or less the headlines of coming attractions. Then we're going to see some some just kind of figures of the judgment that's coming. Then we're going to see the seven bowls of wrath actually poured out kind of maybe detailing the seventh trumpet and dividing it into the seven bowls of wrath. And then we're going to back off and we're going to look in specific at the fall of each of the devil's allies and then finally at the fall of the dragon himself and at the victory of God's people. So we're looking at the same thing as many different ways to try to give us more impact with it as we can. So I think these angelic announcements that are next really serve as headlines 
for, for what we're going to see. Would somebody read 6 to 13? And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of waters. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. So look at the first angel's announcement in 6 and 7. This is great news, eternal good news to everyone. And the news is to fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. God's judgment is good news for those who are faithful to Him. And the hour of His judgment has come, and that's the headline for chapter 15 and 16. That's going to be the pouring out of God's judgment on the wicked. He has, and he encourages us to worship him who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and the springs of waters. That four-part division, the heaven, the earth, the sea, and the springs of waters, parallels the realms affected in the first four trumpets and the realms affected in the first four bowls. There's a lot to that four-part division in the book. So that's the headlines for uh, chapter 15 and 16. Then in verse 8, the second angel announcement, fallen, fallen, is Babylon the Great. Now, we know Babylon is a fallen woman before we are ever even introduced to her in chapter 17. We, we already know her outcome, which is encouraging. Chapter 17 and 18 will introduce us to Babylon and show her fall. So this announcement is the headline for chapter 17 and 18. It's kind of like... God told Abraham that he was the father of many nations before he had any children. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, how could God say that? Well, because what God determines will be, will be. It's like it's already happened. He can use past tense for future events that are by his determination. God has already decided Babylon would fall, so Babylon's fallen because of God's purpose before that, that event actually takes place. Babylon the Great. There are six times in this book that Babylon is mentioned every single time. Babylon the Great, which goes back to what in the Old Testament? Do you remember Babylon the Great in the Old Testament? Who said that? I'll stretch your mind. It's in Daniel who said it. This is Babylon the Great, which I have built. Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. 
Yeah, Daniel 4.30, when he was boasting about Babylon, and God sent him out to pasture, and he became like a beast uh, to learn the lesson that God's the ruler, not him. So this is Babylon the Great. Now look, Babylon the Great has made the nations to drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Babylon has been a bad influence on the other nations. So, we're looking at these series of angel announcements. The first one, forecasting chapter 15 and 16. This one, chapter 17 and 18. I'll pause. Do you have a question or comment through verse 8? Well, to, at least to the, you know, when you first think of this, it says, well, they're preaching the eternal gospel. You know, this is good news, but you know, when you hear the message, you're, it's only good news to one group. <laughs> That's correct, yes. Depends on who you are, how good the news is. Kyle? Uh, could you help me understand Babylon a little better? Like, as I, I mean, I realize Babylon was an enemy of, of the Lord, obviously. Was it symbolic of the ultimate bad enemy? Or, I mean, they had other enemies, too. So why is Babylon... Well, we'll see that more in chapter 17, but I think Babylon, yes, has always been symbolic of the enemy of God, perhaps of human pride and human achievement, going way back to the Tower of Babel, and, and to really worldliness in general. So more so than the other enemies that God had, Babylon's kind of the, the symbol of the worst. And the symbol of, of, of the human pride and human worldliness enemy. I think Babylon captures that idea perhaps better than any other symbol could. The third angel announcement in 9 through 11 the beast worshippers do what? Drink of the wine of God's wrath mixed in full strength, undiluted wrath in the cup of his anger. That's bad. Now you might contrast what's said in chapter 13 verses 15 to 17 where it looks like you're better off to be a beast worshiper. You know, you get certain advantages and it's more secure. Not in the long run. God's going to pour his wrath down on the beast worshipers. Now, uh, you've got the concept that Babylon made the nations drink the wine of her immorality in verse 8. Now she gets what's coming to her. She made them drink. She's going to drink. You reap what you sow, except what she's going to drink is going to be a very, very horrible thing. Throughout the Bible, you've got this concept of the cup of God's wrath. Kind of like a venomous potion that he makes people drink as a judgment or punishment to them. There's so much of these things that it helps if we've learned the Old Testament background. I would cite especially Jeremiah 25 and Isaiah 51, but there's several other passages in the Old Testament that make reference to the cup of God's wrath. And once you start reading that, you realize that a nation or, or whoever would drink of the cup of his wrath and they'd stagger and they'd vomit and they'd fall. And it was God's way of describing his punishment. And, you know, this is going to be 200 proof wrath. <laughs> you know, completely unmixed. Uh, you, you might even think this, this concept of the cup of God's wrath when Jesus prayed, 
let this cup pass from me. That's what he was really talking about. He was going to be experiencing the wrath of God against sin on the cross, more than just the physical punishment. And so when he said, let this cup pass from me, it wasn't just a metaphor for suffering. He's really talking, asking for God not to allow him to suffer the torment and the wrath against the sins of mankind. There's just a lot in that that concept of the cup of God's wrath. And when they drink that, they're tormented. With fire and brimstone, their smoke goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. It's interesting to compare the day and night phrase in the book. You've got two other references to that. In 4.8, the four living creatures do not cease day and night to praise God. That's continual. In 7.15, the faithful of God are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. That's continual. But so is the punishment of the beast worshippers. They have no rest day and night. You don't want to be on that side of things. Comments and thoughts? Scott. You know, you mentioned last night a lot of people will talk about the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. They're one and the same. You know, if you read the, the Gospels and Paul's letters, you get the mercy and love of God. If you read Revelations, you get the judgment of God. I mean, it's there pretty plain. And that should make it clear. It's the same God. There isn't any difference. Amen. Absolutely. Other thoughts? Dave? One thing, kind of backing up a little bit, sure. the issue of Babylon there. Uh, if you go back to 13, verse 10, I was checking last night, that's a, something that's quoted also in Jeremiah and in reference yes. to the Babylonian captivity. And it, it's in two passages there. It has two different, um, two different meanings. One related to the unfaithful Israelites but another to the fact that God is going to use Babylon to bring judgment on his own people, but then he's going to judge them. Mm-hmm. So if their familiarity with that might tie in with Babylon, because now he's saying Babylon has fallen, and that's another way of reassuring them of the victory. Okay, good good observation. Thank you. Scott? Uh, another point in chapter 13, you're in verse 10, you talk about it, it tells you how to overcome this sea beast here's perseverance of the faith in the saints in verse uh, 18 how do you overcome this deceiving beast here is wisdom be wise how do you avoid this judgment in, in verse 12 I think it, perseverance of the saints yes but it's also obedience yes you know, a saint could be disobedient and not persevere and fall into this judgment sure so you really need endurance you need obedience and you need faith yeah good point And then you've got the final voice. This doesn't necessarily come from an angel, but a voice from heaven in verse 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. They have rest from their labors. Now the torment of the beast followers, that's in chapter 19 and 20. This rest for the faithful is in chapters 21 and 22. Notice the contrast. Verse 11, the beast worshippers have no rest. Verse 13 Those who die in the Lord, they rest from their labors. That'll be a great blessing for them. So really, to me, these four announcements have previewed the rest of the book. 
And, and I think seeing it this way is going to enable him one more time to really uh, impress these lessons on us. He wants as many ways as he can to show us God's victory and the collapse of the dragon in his system. Any questions or comments through verse 13? Just one more question. Um, again, these are all pictures, and the pictures are getting more and more complicated. <laughs> yeah, well, probably so. So how are you keeping them straight in your mind? I, I guess I still see, you know, the throne room's here, and there's this panorama of Earth, essentially. And uh, I think that, that makes sense to me in, in verse 6, the angel flying in mid-heavens. That, that angel flying in between the two. You know, right. He's not in heaven. He's over the earth. He's flying, and he's making this announcement. And then you, you know you're going to get into uh, uh, well, well in chapter 14 you've got Mount Zion there, so it's like you're seeing somehow Israel and possibly Jerusalem, and now along with that in verse 15 here you haven't got to you, but it comes out of the temple, and so you're you're somehow expanding upon that vision. It's zooming in a little bit closer. Yeah, it seems to me like we've got to allow for a lot of set changes. You know, that that's, that's the best way I know to look at this, is that from time to time the set changes, and we're looking at the earth, we're looking at heaven, we're looking at different angles on those same things, because these visions don't all match up together. They can't all be, you know, in the same set, it seems to me. And if they did, they wouldn't fit, because you'd have... You know, certain things, you know, the sun's black while the sun's darkened for a third of the day and things like that, and that doesn't work. So I think, you know, you kind of, it's like a play to me. You know, you, you pull down the screen, you change the yeah, set, and, you know, we go again. That, that's the best explanation I know, but that's a good observation. I'm really happy that you're continuing to visualize this. I think it's really helpful. Other thoughts or questions? What, we go till when? Okay. Uh, we don't go much longer, but let's uh, talk for a second about the rest of this. We'll take advantage of our last uh, three or four minutes. In verse 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who had sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, you've got this symbol of reaping the harvest. The man with the sickle that cuts down the grain. Now, the reaping of the harvest is an appropriate image for judgment. Because when they gathered the grain, they would put it into a large tank, vat, whatever, and they'd maybe send the ox in to trample on it to separate the heads of grain from the straw. Then, in a breezy day, you get a big scoop shovel and you throw this up in the air. And what's going to happen in the breeze? What's going to happen with the straw? It's going to blow off. What's going to happen with the grain? Come back down. It's much denser and heavier for the amount of space that it occupies. So that was their way of separating. Then they go out and rake up the straw. 
and burn it. And they put the grain in the silo or whatever to use. Well, see, that's the judgment of God. Separating, it out, separating out the chaff, the straw, to burn it up while you conserve and, and secure the grain. So the harvest idea is a, a very suitable concept for judgment, and that's what you have here. And, and uh, what he's going, he, he mentions the hour to reap. You put in the sickle at exactly the right time. He's also going to, in the next section, talk about the, the grape harvest. There is a verse in the Old Testament that connects the grape and grain harvest. That's Joel 3.13. And uh, so we'll stop there that you can think about that, and we'll talk about this some more a little later if we have a chance uh, this afternoon with some people. So uh, I appreciate your comments. I appreciate your attention. Um, it's been really good, really encouraging to uh, see that, and uh, so we'll make preparation for worship.